Let us give careful attention to the public reading of God's Word as it is found in Psalm 150. Okay, Mike, I just want you to know something. They actually use the bulletin. So it's, it's worth producing. They pay attention. They do. They do. And they're going to doubt that I'm a Presbyterian after this. I am. I'm just, I'm one of those flexible Presbyterians. Who, who often forgets to turn his microphone on. But he, he does get when, what this means in the back. Okay, where were we? Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's words. It's found in Psalm 150, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with the strings and flute. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading and preaching of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are You, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by Your Word, Your Word which is truth. Now we pray that you would sweeten that word in our hearts, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, even as we honor you more along the path, praying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, in our first two um, lessons... Friday night and Saturday morning, we went rather slowly. We took two lessons to study one psalm. This morning we're going to move rather quickly. Our text is actually Psalm 1 to 150. But I didn't have time to read the whole text, so I just read the end of it for you. But our text really is 1 to 150. How many of you know what daily bread is? Some hands go up. My guess is that most of you are not thinking of the daily bread that I'm thinking of. Most of you are probably thinking of the little small devotional. Yes. Now, some of you are going to remember the daily bread that I'm thinking of. When I first started to date my wife, this was probably, well, I wasn't dating my wife. I was dating the young woman who's going to be my wife. Um... When I was first dating Adele, that makes it easier, I went up to her house. You know, it was that first weekend, meet the parents. And at breakfast on Saturday morning, there was a little plastic loaf of bread. And it had the center cut out of it. And there were these little cards on it. And somebody pulled one of the cards out and it had a scripture verse on it. They read the scripture verse and that was our daily bread. And after you'd go through the cards, and there weren't many, you'd shuffle them, kind of like the trivia game, and you'd put them back in, and you'd go through the daily bread again. And uh, that's kind of a metaphor for how we tend to read the book of Psalms. We read it, 
as if it's our daily bread. And what I mean by that is, let's just say that there are two kinds of psalms in the book of Psalms. There are happy psalms and there are sad psalms. Here's how we tend to use the book of Psalms. When we're happy, we dip in and pull out a happy psalm. And when we're sad, we dip in and pull out a sad psalm. And our presumption, we've not thought about it before, but our presumption is that um, when the Holy Spirit inspired the book of Psalms, he inspired the writing of 150 separate psalms. And then he told somebody to put them on index cards and shuffle them. And there's the book of Psalms. We really treat the book of Psalms as if it's a random collection of prayers and praises. We don't think of the book of Psalms in the same way that we think of the chapters in Luke or the chapters in Romans. We would never think that the chapters in Romans are random. We would think that they're there in a special order. Well, in just the same way that the chapters in Romans or Luke or Acts are in order, so are the chapters in the book of Psalms. And there's actually a a story that can be followed through the book of Psalms. Actually, since it's such wonderful literature inspired by God, there are actually a couple of stories that are told simultaneously through the book. Is somewhat like, only on a way like elevated scale, somewhat like some TV shows that we watch where there are a couple of storylines going on simultaneously. The Bible has a, a couple of storylines in the book of Psalms. And since we only have two hours, as Mike said, we can only look at one of them uh, this morning. And I, I really want to kind of look at the message that is encapsulated in the entire book. And since I know by now with my change from 147 to 150, you've read your bulletin, you know that we are looking at the Psalms as our destiny. The Psalms tell us something about who we are and where we are heading. The Psalms talk about where we are now. But the Psalms say we're not stuck here forever. We're going somewhere. The Psalms and our destiny. Now, just by way of introduction, I want to say that we call this book the book of Psalms. Over the weekend, we've had a number of occasions to talk about Greek and Latin translations of the Hebrew Bible, that sort of thing. The names for the characters in the Old Testament and the names for the books in our English Bibles, they tend to come from the Greek and Latin tradition, not from the ancient Hebrew tradition. And our title, Book of Psalms, comes from the Greek and Latin tradition. In, in both Greek and Latin, a psalm is a song sung to the accompaniment of plucked instruments. So that's really what we call the book. We call it the book of songs sung to the accompaniment of plucked instruments. Publishers probably wouldn't like that one very well these days. But the ancient Hebrew tradition has a different name for the book. They call it the book of praises. And we want to know why. Especially because if there are two basic kinds of psalms, happy psalms and sad psalms, if we were to put all the happy psalms on index cards and all the sad psalms on index cards 
and we were to put them in two shoeboxes, happy shoebox here, sad shoebox here, the sad box has more psalms in it than the happy does. And if that's the case, why did the ancient Hebrews call it the book of happy songs when there are more sad songs than happy songs? Now, the technical name for these sad songs over here is Lamentations. So if we were naming the book based on the most frequent kind of song, we would have called this the book of Lamentations, but we couldn't do that. Why not? Already taken. Copyright infringement, even back in the day, wouldn't have worked. So what we want to know is why do the ancients call this the book of praises, the book of happy songs when there are more sad than happy? To answer that, I want to just talk about four things. How many? Not. Not. Four. And they're all related. First thing we want to see is that the book of Psalms moves. It moves from sad to happy, from lamentation to praise, from suffering to glory. Now, if we were to plot the distribution of the Psalms, while we'd find some happy Psalms and some sad Psalms mixed up through the whole book, one thing is very clear. The beginning of the book of Psalms is heavily weighted. We'd have most of our dots up front for the sad Psalms. The book of Psalms begins with lamentation. Uh, Over the weekend, we've talked about the fact that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are actually the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. So that from one literary perspective, we could kind of say that Psalm 3 is the first Psalm. Uh, Look at how Psalm 3 starts. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. See, the psalmist is in trouble. Psalm 4, answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God, give me relief from my distress. The psalmist is in trouble. Psalm 5, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my sighing, listen to my cry for help. The psalmist is in trouble. Psalm 6, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? The psalmist is in trouble. Psalm 7, O Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. The psalmist is in trouble. Jump over to Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And here the psalmist is in what I call double trouble. Because it's one thing to be in trouble and to have the deep sense that God is with you in that trouble. It's another matter altogether when you are in trouble And you have the sense that God is nowhere to be found. Look at Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Double trouble. In trouble and seemingly God has abandoned me. God has forgotten me. 
I can't see God anywhere in my experience. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Very clear where the book of Psalms begins. It begins with lamentation. It begins with sad psalms. It begins with trouble. It begins with suffering. But that's not where the book of Psalms ends. Over the weekend, we also talked about the fact that the book of Psalms is divided into how many books? Five. Can somebody remind us, how do we know where all the books end? There's an insertion of a, starts with a D. There's the insertion of a doxology to mark the end of each of the books. Well, like one and two are the introduction and three's the first psalm, so to speak. From that same kind of perspective, Psalm 145, turn there, is really the last psalm before the grand doxology that closes off the entire book. And notice how Psalm 145 starts. It starts with the title, a psalm of praise. See that word praise? That Hebrew word for praise is the same Hebrew word that ancient Jews used for the title of the book when they called it the book of praises. And the fact is that Hebrew word for praise is only used in one title to one psalm. And it's Psalm 155, which I'm calling the last psalm, because after Psalm 100 and did I say 55? Yes. Sorry. No, I don't believe in five extra psalms. (laughs) How about 45? Does that sound better? 145. Thank you. 146, 147, 148, 149, 150, they're all the grand conclusion to the book. They're the grand doxology. But notice how 145 starts. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Then if we were to look at Psalm 146, just the first three words, praise the Lord. And the last three words of 146, praise the Lord. And the first three words of 147, praise the Lord. And the last three words of 147, praise the Lord. And the first three words of 148, praise the Lord. And the last three words of 148, praise the Lord. And the first three words of 149, praise the Lord. And the last three words of 149, Praise the Lord. Now, you think God would think that we got it by now. But he's the master parent. Parents, when you first gave your kids instructions, did they always get it the first time? No, they needed this thing called REP. They needed repetition. And so God is repeating, repeating, repeating. And just in case after 149, we don't have it yet. Notice how 150 starts, praise the Lord, and then just listen, praise God, praise him, 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 praise him. And just in case, just in case we still haven't got it, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And what are the last three words in the book of Psalms? This is pretty different than 
Help, O Lord. I'm in trouble, O Lord. Where are you, O God? Deliver me, O God. Heal me, O God. I'm in agony, O God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The Psalms are not random in their ordering. God put them in an order, loading the front end with lamentation and loading the back end with praise. There is movement in the book of Psalms from lamentation to praise, from suffering to glory. And the ancient Hebrews knew this. And that's why they did not call the book Lamentations. Because while the book deals with the reality of suffering and the need to lament, that's not what the book is ultimately about. The book is ultimately about praise. It's about doxology. It's about glory. The book of Psalms is moving somewhere. And the ancient Hebrews understood this. And so they said, no, we had at the committee meeting this one suggestion. Somebody said, let's call it the book of songs sung to the accompaniment of plucked instruments. And we voted that one down immediately. Because it doesn't capture the genius of what God has given us. He's given us a book of praises that ends on that note of glory. So that's my first point. Just to show you that the book of Psalms moves from lamentation to praise. And there's a message there for us, which we'll get to. Here's my second point. The laments, you know, those negative songs, those laments themselves have a movement. And the movement of the lament is from suffering to glory, from lamentation to praise. See, the the. The typical lament in the book of Psalms starts with, help, O Lord, where are you, O Lord, why, O Lord? But they typically end on a note of praise. Let's look at just one example. It's a well-known one, Psalm 22. Notice that Psalm 22 Starts with those well-known words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, let me just say, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you feel forsaken by God, don't beat yourself up. Don't be hard on yourself. Don't say, man, what a lousy Christian I am to think that God has forsaken me. You are just one in a long chain of saints who have experienced that. It's called being human. And it's okay. If it weren't okay, it wouldn't find articulation in the book of Psalms so frequently. Where God's people say to God, I feel like you've turned your back on me. You really can say that to God in prayer. It's in his inspired word. His shoulders are big enough to take it. He's heard it before. He's heard it by better saints than you and I. He's not going to get mad at you and turn away from you. He's just going to say, you know, I really appreciate your honesty in prayer. If the Holy Spirit does anything in the book of Psalms, he teaches us that we can be honest with ourselves and with God about what we're thinking and what we're feeling when we are in those lamenting situations. Let yourself be human. 
Don't make yourself be something that you are not a super saint who never feels the way you know you really do feel. By the way, can't pull the wool over God's eyes. He knows what you're thinking and feeling anyhow, even if you don't tell him. So just go ahead and be honest with yourself and be honest with God. We could look at other things in this psalm. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Verse 6, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. Uh, Drop over to verse 12. Uh, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, etc. Wow, this psalm is really starting with lamentation, with suffering. Drop down to verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise you. Him. Uh, verse 25, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. The laments start with suffering, but they move to glory. They start with lamentation, but they end up with praise. In other words, when the Holy Spirit was inspiring the structuring of the book of Psalms, he inspired the book of Psalms to be one grand lament whereby it starts with lamentation, like Psalm 22, but it ends with praise, like Psalm 22. Not only does the book of Psalms move from lamentation to praise, but so do the laments. Now, how do we explain this movement? Well, I think I'm going to give you a theological explanation in a moment, but let me at least give you a couple of suggestions. It's possible that David wrote... Verses 1 through 21 in January, when he was really in trouble. And come September, God had delivered him. And once God had delivered him, he then writes the rest of the psalm. That's possible. And maybe in between, the the priest came and spoke some word of encouragement to him. So maybe there's a gap in between the lamentation and the praise where the priest speaks a word of encouragement, God intervenes and delivers, and David now says, praise the Lord. We don't have any psalms that have this kind of gap in them, but I do have a a similar experience that you may be familiar with. There was this woman named Hannah. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah was in, starts with a T, R-O, She was in trouble. What was Hannah's trouble? She couldn't have a child. She was actually in double trouble in this sense. There was not only Hannah, there was also this woman named Panina. What did Panina have? Lots of children. What did Panina tell Hannah about 52 times a day? I have children and you do not. Which is why the Bible calls her a rival wife. There was hostility between them. So what does Hannah do? Hannah goes to the tabernacle and Hannah prays. Hannah prayed honestly. She was praying so honestly that the priest thought what? The priest thought she was drunk. And she said, 
It's only nine o'clock. Really, that's what she said. It's too early in the day for me to be drunk. It's only nine o'clock. I'm not drunk. I haven't been drinking. What you're hearing is the deep agony of my soul. What you're hearing is the pain coming out from inside of me in my honest praying. And in short, the priest said, God bless you. Go home and have a baby. And what did Hannah do? She went home and had a baby. That's 1 Samuel chapter 1, Lamentation. 1 Samuel chapter 2, that's called Hannah's Song. Can somebody summarize it in three words for me? Praise the Lord. So you see, there was a gap of at least nine months in between. Where are you, O God? Help, O God. Heal me, O God. Deliver me, O God. I'm in trouble, O God. And praise the Lord. The word of God comes into her situation. Uh, She experiences God's deliverance and she says, praise the Lord. So it is, I'm not making it up that there could be this gap in between. All I'm saying is we really don't have any evidence in any particular psalm that that gap exists. There is, however, another reason for the move from lamentation to praise. But you've got to hold on for just a couple of minutes to find out what that reason is. So all I've said so far is, in trying to answer the question, why did the ancients call it the book of praises and not songs sung through the accompaniment of plucked instruments... They understood the movement in the book from lamentation to praise from suffering to glory. And they understood that that's a large scale version of the laments themselves, which move from lamentation to praise from suffering to glory. Well, here's the third thing I want to tell you is that Jesus life moved from lamentation to praise. Some people will ask me which Psalms are messianic. And usually what they're asking me is kind of which psalms do you think have some kind of special prediction about some particular detail in Jesus' life or ministry? But when somebody asks me which psalms are about Jesus, my answer is all of them. They're all about Jesus in one way or another. But then I say, you know what? Not only are all of the individual psalms a picture of the life of Christ in one way or another... So is the entire book in the way that it is structured. Remember after Jesus' death and resurrection, but before people knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead, there were two Jews who were walking on a road toward a particular town. What was the road called? There are these two Jewish men on the road to Emmaus. And These men, if they were singing psalms, they were singing happy psalms or sad psalms? They were singing sad psalms. Now, when I told you that all of the laments uh, end on a positive note, that's pretty much the case. There always have to be a couple of what? There always have to be a couple of exceptions. And the biggest exception is Psalm 88. In the language of the NIV, Psalm 88 ends this way. The darkness is my closest friend. The only glimmer of hope that I can see in Psalm 88 is that the psalmist is praying and hasn't committed suicide. 
there has to be some little glimpse of light in his life because he's still praying. But other than the fact that he's praying, that's a dark psalm. The darkness is my closest friend. And if I had to pay my money and take my pick, those two men on the road to Emmaus were singing Psalm 88. They had no hope. They had no hope because their hope was dead. Because all of their hopes had been pinned on this guy named Jesus. And as far as they knew, Jesus was dead. And since their hope was pinned on Jesus, their hope was dead. The darkness is my closest friend. I may have somewhere along the line told you about one of my favorite movies, uh, which I just watched over Christmas again, Princess Bride. And uh, my favorite scene, Miracle Max, Billy Crystal. They think Wesley's dead and they need a miracle. And... um, And Miracle Max picks up his arm and drops it. And he says, he's not dead. He's just, he's just mostly dead. Because if he's dead, dead, I can't do anything for him. But if he's mostly dead, you know, maybe I can make this chocolate kind of ball and yes. Well, we read the Nicene Creed. Sometimes we use the Apostles Creed, especially when we use the Apostles Creed. We're very clear that Jesus wasn't what? He wasn't mostly dead. We say that Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, descended into hell. He was not mostly dead. He was dead, dead. And their hope was dead. See, what's interesting in that story is Jesus, in his masterful way, comes along these guys and he says, Fellas, if you had only read the Old Testament, or at least the Cliff's Notes version of the Old Testament, you would know that the Old Testament teaches just two basic things about the Son of Man. First of all, the Old Testament teaches that the Son of Man had to, what's the S word? The the Son of Man had to suffer. And the Old Testament teaches that the Son of Man had to enter into his, it starts with a G. Jesus says, you want a summary of my entire life? Here it is. My life is a movement, folks. My life is a movement from suffering to glory. You see, Jesus sang the laments. I picked Psalm 22 as an example of the lament because it's such a well-known, clear example of the movement. But I picked it for another reason. When Jesus was on the cross, what did he say, among other things? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is on Jesus' lips in the New Testament. The first half of Psalm 22. Well-known. Not as well-known is Hebrews 2.12. In Hebrews 2.12, on Jesus' lips, the author of Hebrews says, I will declare your praise to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. In the New Testament, on Jesus' lips are not only the words of the first half, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But also the words of the second half. Praise the Lord. You see, Jesus not only sang the laments, he also now sings the praises. And here's why the transition is possible. Here's why. Something happened to Jesus in between, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Hebrews 2.12, praise the Lord. What happened to Jesus experientially in between those two verses? He was raised from the dead. And I'm telling you that if God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can reverse any circumstance. My point of uh, Princess Bride, once again, Jesus was not mostly dead. What kind of power did it take for God to raise that dead corpse from the grave? I've shared with some of you that just a couple of weeks ago, my father passed away. And I did something right before the closing of the coffin that I'm glad I did because it just helped me with closure in a profound way. I was there by myself and I kissed my father on the forehead. And when I kissed him on the forehead, I knew he was dead. There was no life there. He was cold and dead. Jesus was that cold. He was that dead. And what kind of power did God exert on that third day when he raised him from the dead? That's the power that it takes to move from lamentation to praise, from suffering to glory. You see, Jesus' life has moved from lamentation to praise, from suffering to glory because of God's resurrection power. And that's the power that Paul says is at work in us who believe. And so I have only one more point to make. We've said that the book of Psalms moves from lamentation to praise. The laments move from lamentation to praise. Jesus' life moved from lamentation to praise. And my last point is your lives are moving from lamentation to praise. There may be times... When you need to sing the laments. I wish it weren't the case from one perspective. I wish we had never sinned against God in the garden and we went from the garden straight to heaven, but we didn't. We are now in what Paul calls this present evil age. And there may be times when you need to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you do say it, pray it. The Holy Spirit gives you the freedom. Uh, the fact is, no matter how far down you go, there is somebody who's gone further. You see, in Psalm 22, David said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David felt forsaken, but he wasn't because God said, never will I leave you or forsake you. Jesus on the cross not only felt forsaken, he was forsaken because he bore our sins. He did descend into hell to pay the penalty for our sins and was for that time abandoned by God. So no matter how deep we have to go at times, there's at least some comfort in knowing that Jesus, our high priest, has gone deeper than we will ever go. 
so that it is really true what we sing. Underneath us are always the everlasting arms to catch us and to hold us forever. So if you need to lament, go for it. God gives you the permission. He gives you the freedom. But remember, that's not who you are. It may be what you're experiencing, but it's not who you are. You're children of destiny. You are children of glory. You are children of doxology. Let me ask you this. Before the fall, before the fall, were you a sinner? No. Before the fall, did you experience misery? No. Let's talk about heaven. When you're in heaven, will you be sinning? No. Will you be experiencing misery? No. Then sin and misery must be an add-on. It is not the core of who you are as those whom God has created and God has redeemed. You know what is? Glory. Doxology. It has to be because the God who created you is a glorious God and He made you in His image. You're children of destiny. You may feel stuck at times, but you never are. You are always moving toward your destiny. You are always moving toward glory. And how do I know? I know because the book of Psalms moves from lamentation to praise, from suffering to glory. I know because the laments move from lamentation to praise, from suffering to glory. But beneath all of that, I know because Jesus has moved from lamentation to glory, from suffering to praise, and he did it for you. When he was suffering, he was suffering for you. When he was raised, he was raised for you. When he ascended to glory to the Father's right hand, he did that for you. And you, by grace, through faith, are mystically united to Christ. So right now, believe it, you're in heaven already. That's why Paul says, do not think about things on the earth, but think about things above where your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You're already there. Can you taste it? You surely can. Just like in communion, we get that small taste of juice. All along the way, God gives us small tastes of the glory that is to be revealed. You have to have the eyes of faith to see it. You have to have the ears to hear it. But it's there. It's there in the fact that you have the ears to hear me right now. It's a foretaste of the glory. The Apostle Paul says that God has already given us, and he uses different language in different places, a down payment, a deposit, all guaranteeing the full inheritance You are heirs, heirs of glory. Uh, There's a a reformed denomination called, and I often joke with them. If any of you know them, that's okay. I, I joke with them. Friends that are in this denomination. What's it called? I got it. Sovereign Grace. If any of you know the Sovereign Grace churches. Well, I joke with them. I said, I say, Man, you got reformed and you changed your name. Too bad. The Sovereign Grace Churches used to be called what? Anybody know? People of Destiny International. What a name for Christians. 
And I joke and say, you got saved and turned it to sovereign grace. Now, trust me, I love sovereign grace, but I'm just trying to make a point as to who we are. We are people of destiny. Do you believe that? Let that transform your experiences now. To be sure, we from time to time experience that suffering, that lamentation, those sad psalms. But never forget that they're add-ons. They're not who you are at the very core of your created, redeemed being. God has made you for something better. And you're going to experience that something better in its fullness in the life to come. And God, in His marvelous grace and mercy, gives us increasing foretastes of that glory that is to be revealed. And may he, by his grace, in the rest of this day and the rest of the week and the rest of the days he gives you on earth, grant your eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to feel those tastes of the glory for which God has created you and which he has redeemed you. For his glory, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, blessed be your holy name together with the Son and with the Spirit for your marvelous artistry in the book of Psalms. Uh, More than that, for your marvelous grace and mercy in your redemptive plan that brings us back to that glory for which you created us. Grant us grace to be able to see it to be able to hear it, to be able to understand it, to be able to feel it. Wherever in our lives there are those notes of sadness, of lamentation, of suffering, I'll grant that we might also be able to hear those notes of praise and doxology and glory. Because you know We all, in one way or another, in one area of life or another, we all need hope to keep moving forward. And so may you, the God of all hope, fill us with joy and peace as we trust in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we might overflow with hope in that power. Praying in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.